Hello and welcome. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich, a podcast that focuses on creative talent, people with energy and enthusiasm, inspiring stories, and more. Well, joining me today is a true kindred spirit of mine. He's a man I've listened to on radio for decades, and you have as well, all over the country, probably all over the world. His name is Bill Deal, and he's been covering entertainment for the ABC Radio Network for five decades plus, interviewing hundreds of famous stars and celebrities, both in the studio and on the red carpet. He wrote a book called Stay Tuned, My Life Behind the Mic. And during our discussion, we'll hear a couple of excerpts featuring Bill with Robin Williams and one with Jerry Lewis. But here's what Bill sounded like in the early 70s when he joined ABC Radio, and he still sounds like this today. Here's the latest worldwide news from the American Entertainment Network. Bill Deal in New York reporting. President Nixon's decision to go to Red China has gotten its first unofficial reaction from North Vietnam. South Vietnam proposes a ceasefire and reunification election. A great broadcaster, an entertainment reporter extraordinaire, and a wonderful human being. Let's now go on mic with Bill Deal. Bill, it's nice to meet you finally. Congratulations on your book. Thank you very much. My book uh, came out a little bit earlier than yours. It is uh, still kind of available on uh, Amazon, but uh, at an incredible price now. But uh, if uh, maybe one of your listeners really wants to get one, I can uh, get it to them. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's almost as valuable as uh, a rare copy of the Gutenberg Bible. I mean, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's extremely, uh, extremely rated and highly rated. By the way, I must say, and I didn't have the, the benefit of the names you have on the back of the book. These are the folks who have given endorsements. Barbara Walters, Leonard Malton, Jeffrey Lyons, Peter King of CBS Sports, Lee Pfeiffer, Editor-in-Chief Cinema Retro, and uh, somebody named Regis Philbin. No big names, huh? <laughs> <laughs> not bad, not bad. Sadly, uh, Regis is no longer yeah. on the planet. Uh, but uh, everybody else there is uh, still around. In the book that is so much fun to read for anybody, in or out of the business, there's celebrity stories. We'll get to those. But let's start with you and, and your radio career and where this all starts and how it starts. And it's always an interesting story from childhood. You want to share that with us? Well, it goes way, way back uh, to the 1950s. Uh, remember Crystal Sets? I certainly do. <laughs> seen them in museums. I don't know if you had, <laughs> I don't know if you had one, but uh, those were early radios for guys like, you know, me, a kid who just wanted to test what was uh, a, a, a kind of radio. Uh, and it had what was called a cat whisker. Mm -hmm. And if you played around with that on, on the uh, diode, uh, you could pick up radio stations. But my real interest started when I went to the catalog of Allied Radio in Chicago. I bought a wireless microphone. Uh, it had a little antenna cord on it, and I could broadcast my voice to other radios in our house. But then I discovered, uh, Jordan, if I connected that little antenna to a shortwave antenna between our house and the garage, my goodness, my wireless mic would carry up to six blocks in the neighborhood. <laughs> and so I had a little radio station of my very own, and I was just having a great time. I would get on my bicycle with my transistor radio, and I would leave some music playing on my microphone, and I could go six blocks around the neighborhood. Tanya. So it was it was a, a a lot of fun. I even took the thing out onto the street, interviewed people, the bus driver going by. Uh, it was my own little radio station. Many of us are megalomaniacs. We want power. We want to be heard in a, in a very yes. innocent and fun way. But that's a great story, and I, so many and of my colleagues a, have stories like there, that. Go ahead. Um, Jordan, there was a ham radio operator who lived across the street, and he came to our house one day and knocked on the door, and he said to my father, he said, Mr. Deal, he said, uh, do you have a radio station operating there? And my dad said, well, my son has this little microphone thing. Yeah. And <laughs> the ham operator scared the hell out of my dad. He said, well, you're your kid could be arrested because the FCC <laughs> right. is going to come and take him away. 
Yeah. My father ran into my bedroom where this little microphone station was, and he said, shut that thing down. We're, we could be in trouble. That That's a great story. And uh, I, I remember, uh, the, first of all, there's a great divide between ham radio operators and people in radio. Some do both, but very few. It's an interesting parallel time. That's for another podcast. But, you know, it's in, it's interesting, too. Your career path is very similar to mine. You did it in New York. I did it in Boston, where you wound up pretty quickly moving into the 50,000-watt range. And news was your deal. Tell us a little bit about your first big break. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I guess uh, it was a big break, but it took uh, it took a while. I went from Corning, New York, to this little radio station where I got a job, uh, spinning records on the weekend. And uh, by the time I graduated, I was really a broadcaster. I went to Ithaca College, majored in broadcasting, TV radio. They had a little TV station there. Got a job at a small station in Ithaca. Interestingly, it was an ABC affiliate. Mm. And uh, so here I am. I'm now really into well, kind of big time radio, I guess. Uh, I graduated in uh, 63 and uh, I got married, had a first marriage, and my wife wanted to get her degree in social work. So we moved to Washington, D.C. I had no job. I gave up my fabulous $90 a week job in Ithaca, and uh, I'm now in Washington, but I scrounged a job with Maury Povich at uh, WWDC, which was a 5,000-watt independent station down there. And luckily, a friend of mine who was at the big CBS station, WTOP, uh, Chet Curtis, who became a big name up in Boston with his wife. I'm so glad you mentioned I was going to bring that up. He was beloved. He's a member of the local Hall of Fame, and uh, he left us sadly a few years ago. But uh, a, le- a legend in these parts. But go ahead. Go ahead. Well, Chet was a few years ahead of me. But Chet was already working in television and radio at the big CBS station, WTOP. He called me up on the phone. And I was not on the air at WWDC, and he said, uh, Bill, he said, they're looking for a morning newscaster here at uh, WTOP. You want to come on over and audition? I jumped at it, and I got the job, and here I am, only a few years out of small-time radio, and I am now on the big CBS flagship station in the nation's capital. Mm-hmm. I mean, what more could could you want? It's a great story, and it's interesting how radio news, of course, has, has so changed and been washed down. In those days, it was real news. It was journalism. It was uh, everything from the right questions to ask, words not to use, phrases to avoid, and real objectivity. Talk with us a little bit about that experience and how maybe it's changed. Well, this was the station where Arthur Godfrey, by the way, got his start. Uh, The morning man, uh, Eddie Gallagher, played records and uh, talked uh, with people, talked with listeners. But it it was kind of a mishmash. It was a bit of a talk station and a music station, too. And they had, of course, a late night program, an overnight program, with some of your listeners might uh, remember uh, Music Till Dawn, sponsored by American Airlines. And uh, I would do uh, mm. different uh, shifts that I worked there. I did the morning newscast shift, then I did an evening newscast shift, and my last newscast was uh, the 11 p.m. news at night. Uh, one, one night, the uh, overnight uh, Music Till Dawn guy didn't show up on time. And uh, I loved that music theme, which was so spectacular, that opening theme. And it started out, bum, 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 uh, American Airlines greets you with music till dawn. My goodness, I got to say it. <laughs> A thrill when you're at that point in your career. Absolutely, right? You always pray <laughs> and, for somebody uh, not to show up. Isn't that funny? <laughs> <laughs> and and the overnight uh, guy who hosted the show, Terry Horrigan, 
uh, came into the studio uh, and the opening theme was going and he said, Bill, he said, not bad, he says, but uh, you better stay in news. <laughs> well, well, we'll definitely take that under advisement. Of course, you did sort of stay in news. <laughs> And you ended up working for uh, a legendary radio station, WNEW, and I have on my wall, and too bad you can't see it, maybe when this COVID thing is over, we can get together. And on the wall, I have five posters, uh, WNEW posters with Sinatra's visage and Mel Torme and Ella, and we bought it at an auction in 1983 when I believe the station was starting to change a little bit and more from the, the big band and standards to whatever it became. Can you share with us a, a story or two about WNEW days? Because that were some of the best announcers who ever came down the pike. It really was. Uh, and I always wanted to work for that station. When I was growing up in Corning, I would listen to the big mm. stations in New York, WMGM, WNEW. Of course, the big rocker, WABC. Yeah. But uh, NEW was where I really wanted to be. And uh, in 1967, my first marriage uh, was uh, going down the, down the tubes, as they say. And uh, a friend of mine who I knew from Ithaca uh, called me up. He said, they're auditioning someone at WNEW. So I went up there uh, and auditioned. And about a week later, uh, one of the uh, news directors there called me up and he said, uh, uh, Bill, he said, do uh, you want to work here? I said, are you kidding? Fine. He <laughs> says, when can you start? Oh, man. So within a couple of weeks, I was there working with Ted Brown, William B. Williams, uh, the Milkman's Matinee, and it was just uh, a joy ride. I, I can't tell you how much fun it was. Uh, I finally, I, I don't know if we want to jump ahead here, well, I, I want to just I, ask you about William B. because he, for those in radio of a certain age, he is considered paramount. He's on the Mount Olympus of radio, and I just wondered what he was like to work with. William B. was a, a quiet uh, on the air. We weren't best friends, but he was so easy to work with, and he had that uh, beautiful voice. And, of course, he knew Sinatra. Mm. <laughs> uh who he dubbed the chairman of the board. That's right, that's right. Yeah, so I worked with him on uh, several uh, years. Uh, I worked with the other great DJs, uh, Jim Lowe and uh, people like uh, Pete Myers, who uh, I, uh, I really just uh, thought was one of the great voices. But Willie B, as we called him, uh, was there when I did my last newscast. Uh, which was probably 19, yeah, 71, 1971. And uh, so uh, he uh, looked at me and he said something like, he says, uh, so that's it? You're leaving us? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you probably have a clip of that uh, goodbye from William B. Yeah, we'll hear from that uh, that wonderful exchange in a minute. As I said earlier, the, the attention to news quality and professionalism was at a much higher mark, it seems, back then. Uh, the standards were higher. Am I right about that? Oh, definitely. Uh, the news director of the, of the station would uh, put out uh, a, a memo every few weeks about uh, leads I liked and didn't like. They, we all tried to top everybody else with uh, great introductions uh, to a newscast. Uh, I got in big trouble early on, uh, and I wanted to be like the, everybody else and get in that memo of the leads I liked. And so I think it was like a 4 a.m. newscast, uh, and I said, another Viet Cong attack may be just around the pagoda. <laughs> oops. <laughs> the news huh? I said, oops. Here it the comes. News director <laughs> almost, the news director uh, was driving into the station. He came in and he said he almost drove off the road when he heard that one. He said, another lead like that deal and it's back to Washington. Put you in its place, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> it's, up, it's like getting that call on the, the red phone. If you're in radio, you know what the red phone is. It's that phone that only rings in the control room or the newsroom. So let's 
bring it up a little bit to a more modern Bill Deal, uh, the Bill Deal that the world knows as Mr. Hollywood, red carpet, celebrity interviewer. How did that happen for you? How did you go from straight news to what has become your signature? Well, I went to ABC in uh, the summer of 1971, but they had a couple of programs there that allowed me to interview celebrities. It was called Meet the Author, Meet the Newsmaker. And uh, so I would bring in a celebrity. It could be Jane Fonda. It was uh, Jerry Lewis. Uh, and of course, the great Robin Williams. And uh, so I just was in, in my, my happiest times now, and I suddenly realized, you know, I, I kind of like this a lot better than doing newscasts. So by 1982, uh, they had an opening out in Hollywood, and uh, they sent me out to cover the Academy Awards. And they brought a producer and an engineer with me. Boy, those were the days, huh, when you had a staff like that to go with you. Now it's and, pack up your own bag and get out of here, kid. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a dream come true, I'll tell you. And so here I am standing, you know, close up with some of the great celebrities that uh, you see in that wonderful, uh, you know, the book where I have pictures of them. Oh my gosh! So, yeah, it it was it was uh, my my other dream that I never uh, my big dream, of course, was to be a, a newscaster or announcer and everything. But this is a whole different world for me, and uh, I I loved every minute of it. And by the mid '80s, they make me made me a full time entertainment news correspondent. So now I had the uh, platform to interview almost anybody I wanted to. And before we talk about some of my favorites that are your favorites, the red carpet, is there a secret? And if so, what is it to to doing the red carpet well? I I don't know if it's changed over the years or morphed because of the the personalities involved, but what, what makes for a good red carpet experience for the broadcaster? Well, I would go out there on the red carpet uh, before, of course, the big show started and uh, the celebrities would arrive in their limousines and uh, I would usually stand next to uh, uh, like the ABC television because we were doing the Academy Awards back in those days. And so I had an opportunity to talk to everybody who was coming down the red carpet. And that was a kick. That was a, a lot of fun. And uh, they would take the clips back inside to uh, uh, Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, wherever oh, yeah. they were doing the uh, Oscars. And uh, I had my engineer there. I'd give him some good clips from the interviews I did. We would use those. So, yeah, but the red carpet uh, uh, was just uh, something that everybody talked about. Yeah, and, but uh, but you have I, to be. I still have I still have a few pieces of red carpet that I saved. <laughs> oh, do you? You have to be, Bill, on the spot, quick, because they're moving pretty briskly. They're pr- promoting their stuff, and they're moved along by their promoters and their PR people. So, do you have to make sure you punctuate just the right question with the right tone to to affect a, a good response? Well, there are always the obvious questions that you, you ask. You know, some of them were kind of fun. You get some nice answers. Uh, one of the questions almost everybody said, well, what are you wearing? Meaning, you know, what? who did the dress you wore? Mm. Or uh, sometimes I would say, are you feeling lucky today? Do you have anything that you have special that you have, that, mm. an old coin or something that, you know, is going to, you know. What what is the the biggest thing of uh, being nominated? Silly questions, but sometimes they produced uh, you know fun answers. It must be just a gas to stand there and interview people who you've seen on the big screen. Do you get starstruck, or did you get starstruck along the way at, at anyone? I mean, most of the time we get used to it, but is there anybody who really moved the needle? I think initially I was starstruck, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. I brought a little camera with me and I was taking pictures, you know, and here I am, you know, face to face with Robert Redford or, or Cher uh, or, or Dolly Parton or, or uh, Jane Fonda, who of course I got to interview in the studio a couple of times. 
But uh, that that was really a, a, a exciting to to be that close. And then later, of course, having them right there in the studio with yeah. me. Yeah, and that's where Stay Tuned is, like is so much fun, the book Stay Tuned by Bill, because there are photographs and stories about these celebrities. Which one does everybody comment on, picture-wise? Marilyn Chambers. Gee, how did you guess? Marilyn Chambers. Tom Hanks. <laughs> no, Marilyn Chambers. It's the only picture in the book that would be rated uh, at a hard R. You actually interview this porn star, formerly of the Downey commercials, and she's totally naked. What... <laughs> You kept a straight face. Good for you. How did you How did you manage that? It's, it's 1973, and the assignment manager at ABC said, uh, Bill, we're sending you down to the Pussycat Cinema in Times Square. I said, well, what's going on down there? Well, they just found out that uh, Marilyn Chambers, the fresh-faced young woman on the ivory snow box, was a porn star. And she's down there signing autographs, so you better get down there. I was feeling kind of full of myself. Uh, I'm a network correspondent now. I'm still a newscaster. This is kind of beneath me. (laughs) And they said, no, this is a big story. You get down there. So I go down, and her manager met me at the door. And uh, I went inside. And uh, Jordan, (laughs) there she was on a podium, stark naked. And I said to her manager, I said, isn't there a quiet place where we can do this interview? He said, no, if you want it, this is the way it's going to be. <laughs> and uh, a Reuters photographer saw me there oh with my, my little God. microphone and uh, took a picture of me. That's why that is in the book. It, it belongs in the book. It's one of the most talked about pictures ever, I'm sure, in your career. It's great. <laughs> I. I got to interview her a short time later. She invited me to uh, uh, a photo shoot and a film uh, set where she was trying to become a serious actress. And in my next book that I'm working on now, there's a picture of me with Marilyn Chambers fully clothed. Fully clothed. <laughs> so, so at least uh, I'll have that memory. She she passed away uh, quite a few years ago, but... Uh, it was an experience I will never forget. My wife said to me uh, uh, after that picture showed up, she said, you look like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so well, well documented in here that you've seen and been with all these people. The pictures prove it. So with your indulgence, I'd like to ask you about some of them, just a few. And oddly enough, not oddly enough, a lot of these people I've often, I've also met and interviewed over the years, but Sean Connery, who's a great hero of so many millions, including me. I was impressed with your take on Sean Connery that he was uh, as much a gentleman as he appeared uh, because oftentimes he's given short shrift by media. What did you think of Sean? Sean Connery showed up uh, with a film crew from CBS. They were doing a day in the life of uh, 60 minutes or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they are filming me and Sean Connery as we come into the studio And uh, we started to go into the uh, interview area, and the producer who was with Connery and the crew said, uh, Mr. Connery, uh, could we just do that shot again with uh, Bill? Uh, We didn't quite get the, the angle we wanted. Connery turned to her, and he said, rather sarcastically, he said, this is his interview. He said, if, if we have time, we'll do that again. But right now, it's his show. Wow. I was so impressed. Uh, he didn't play to the crowd or anything. He was just a gentleman, as, as yeah. you mentioned. And I'll just never forget that. That's impressive. That is, particularly, as you know so well, when it's television and radio in the same room, television is often the the big bully and pushes radio aside. So good for Sean. We always had to play, uh, you know, second string to right. the television people. Right. And we're still here and uh, some of them aren't, but that's another story for another time. So let me run through some of these uh, these names. L- uh, musicians, I mean, amazing number of them, but you actually interviewed um, uh, Luciano Pavarotti and I would suspect the language was a little tricky. He, didn't he have trouble with English? What was that like? He was pretty pretty good. Uh, language wasn't uh, his uh, best suit, as you might expect. I interviewed him a couple of times. 
the first time was over at Lincoln Center, and uh, they had a big uh, table of uh, a buffet table, and he was chowing down, eating big. And I remember asking him. I said, "I said, what is it about uh, about uh, your career that you love so much?" And he kind of looked at me like I was an idiot. And he says, "Well, the opera, the opera, of course. That's my life." <laughs> much later, uh, I interviewed him at a hotel room, and uh, he was very gracious. Uh, sadly, he died only about a year later. Yeah, he died uh, young. But, uh, yeah. He was always a, a fascinating man to interview. Nothing like it. You have so many uh, actors, actresses, and funny people. And let's talk about some of the funny people. Only because we mentioned him in the in the opening, but let's start with Robin Williams. And you, I think, interviewed him in the early '80s when he was really on fire. I mean, he was coming off of Mork and Mindy and and doing film and all that. And it, it probably stands out as one of the more energetic moments of your interviewing career. Am I right? No doubt about it. <laughs> uh, Rob Robin Williams, uh, you just hand him a microphone, and you could say anything to him. And he would take off and do a whole shtick with you. But uh, I was doing a show uh, at ABC then called Spotlight. And uh, toward the end of the interview, uh, I said, uh, Robin, uh, I, I just wonder if you would do a little promo for me in my Spotlight show. And he let go like, like nobody's business. I, he was so funny. And uh, I kept it in, obviously, and uh, it, it made for a great promotion for my show. My first interview with Robin Williams was in 1982 at our ABC studios. With an HBO special coming up, he was alternately serious, funny, and introspective. Do you do off-color humor? Oh, well, we, that's, we call it an unnatural act. Yeah, some of it is. It's some of it we can't even talk about right now. I can't even tell you what I'm touching right now. I see that people go, uh, what? A microphone. <laughs> what kind of comedy would you say you do? Is that, is that a tough thing to ask? Someone once called it a cesspool of consciousness. And when I'm performing live, I just it's more of a free form. Do you get nervous before you go on? Yes, even right now I'm nervous. <laughs> the pants fit now. Just before you walk on, just before they announce your name, you go, oh, everybody out, two exits, no waiting. You once said uh, being on stage is like legalized insanity. Sometimes it can be like a squirrel over the Grand Canyon saying, give up the nuts or die, though. That's when things aren't going too well. When did you start being a, a comedian? When, when did you know you really had something that audiences would love? Uh, I didn't really start performing until I was about 24. But when you were growing up... No, uh, I was a closet, no? <laughs> a closet comedian. <laughs> Just little props and things. You know. And I hid in the backyard. Yeah, right? Shh! What are you doing in the sun? Nothing, Dad! Your classmates in school, uh, I read, voted you most humorous and least, least likely, likely to, to succeed. succeed yeah. Is that, that right? <laughs> now, look at them now. <laughs> My revenge! They didn't know! <laughs> he came back to the high school, they told him. Friday the 14th, they didn't know. You do impersonations uh, every once in a while, don't you? Celebrities, <laughs> right? Oh, God. Elmer Peter Laurie's your favorite? He's my favorite because, you know, I would love to see him as Mr. Rogers. Um, another guy who often was thought to be a tough, tough interview and was not very friendly with many members of the press, Jerry Lewis. I interviewed Jerry Lewis in 1982 when his book came out called Jerry Lewis in Person. <sighs> what are you doing? What are you doing to the microphone? I'm making an impersonation of Yankee Stadium. <sighs> they, they need all the uh, applause they can get up there these you days. You want to my impersonation of a boat? You came from an entertainment family background, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. Your folks were uh, entertainers. And you talk about uh, some problems you had as a child. Uh, it wasn't a real great childhood, was it, growing up? Uh, well, it wasn't devastating, except it was terribly lonely because my folks were always traveling, always on the road. My dad played what was called the Sun Time. The Sun Time was burlesque circuit where some of the great performers began their careers. The Milton Burles and the Jerry Lewis's and the Jack Carter's and, and the Sid Caesar's all learned from these heavyweights in that field. I learned from the best. They never became big stars because they were trapped in that, that circuit, which was like 40 weeks a year. The Sun Dial, which was Buffalo, Cleveland, Detroit, New York, Chicago. It was like going to a university. I suspect that a lot of people, uh, when they decide to pick up this book, are going to look for particular passages or, or parts of your life that they want to read about. I'm sure Dean Martin is going to be one of them. Yes, absolutely. 46, we teamed up. 
July 25th, and we split up July 25th. 10 years to the day. But when Martin and Lewis were on top, they played to packed houses at the Copa in New York and across the country. They also starred in a series of comedy films. And then it was over. The famed Martin and Lewis comedy team broke up. And Lewis told me... When the split happened, the kind of mail and the kind of response we got from this country was as though we had killed somebody. And I understood that. I really did understand it, except that what I wanted the public to understand was that we had lives that needed fixing, too. But there was no time to say that, not in those days. We had nine perfectly magnificent years. The tenth year was terribly tough, because I couldn't look in his eyes. Did you ever worry you couldn't make it on your own after, after the split? You like breathing? Exactly. Frightened to death. I admired Jerry Lewis uh, for so many years, and of course, uh, Jerry Lewis with uh, his muscular dystrophy and television, mm. uh, he was he was a uh, how how shall I how shall I put it? Funny. He and Dean Martin were the the kings of uh, early television, and of course, they did radio too. But uh, Jerry was serious uh, at several points in my interview. And I asked him about uh, the breakup. I said, who was it who really you know, did it? And uh, I think uh, you may have a clip of that interview where Jerry explained how he felt. I think he said to me something like, he said, you would think that uh, I murdered somebody. People were so upset uh, when they heard that we had broken up. They thought it was my fault. Mm. Before we talk about others, there's a, a knack to gaining someone's trust and confidence in a few seconds and then developing a relationship. You obviously have that knack with big names, with superstars who uh, are used to all kinds of questions and all kinds of interviewers. Do you have a advice for anyone who's getting into the field or is working in the area of interview broadcast or podcast? W what makes for a good interview? I don't think it's as easy as it uh, used to be. Uh, it's, it's harder now. Uh, celebrities uh, are not as easy to uh, get into your studio as you probably found out too mm -hmm. over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not as available uh, and uh, their publicists uh, kind of run the show. But uh, I always found that uh, if, if you get to talk to them in, in an easy way, kind of lead into it quietly, uh, and don't uh, don't push for the the, the big money clip uh, for the interview, but if someone wants to do it now, especially on radio, it's not easy anymore. But you can still do it. Uh, you've got to be persistent. Uh, you can latch on to uh, uh, someone who is a publicist and maybe get to know them pretty well, and bring in some people that will allow you to do an interview. But uh, uh, trying to get into radio isn't like it used to be, like it was you, for you, too. No, uh, no. I mean, here I was, you know, 1956, starting my career uh, as a, a teenage disc jockey uh, who wanted to get into radio. And little radio stations would you know, let you do that. Uh, they don't do that anymore now. Well, so yeah, they kind of the, the little radio stations are bought up by the big radio stations and they're syndicating their programming. And, and I, I wouldn't want to be a disc jockey uh, starting out these days. It's really tough because music is so differently presented. And speaking of music, what's it like to sit down with Paul McCartney? I mean, for many people of a certain generation, that's like sitting down with the Pope or <laughs> the Dalai Lama. But you had an interview with I him. Had... Go ahead. I had one interview with uh, Paul McCartney. It was a very brief one. He was appearing uh, at a club in, in New York. And uh, so I, I sat down. Uh, his wife uh, was with him then. And uh, it wasn't a long interview at all. But uh, I do remember one line that uh, just stood out for me. He said, uh, we were just kids then. We were just kids he said, and look, look what happened to us. Mm. Uh, but by then, he was still uh, at the top of his game, and uh, he was very easy to interview. Uh, my uh, niece was with me with a camera because I wanted a, a picture with him. And so when uh, uh, I started to, you know, 
asked for a photo, why McCartney's publicist jumped in and said, this was not part of the interview. This was not what we <laughs> planned. And she managed to get a quick shot. Uh, and she had turned, uh, turned the, uh, let me get this correct. My niece had uh, changed the setting on the camera. Okay. So when the photos came back, it was dark. Luckily, I was able to send it to a professional uh, uh, photo place, and they were able to get the picture. But it's not a good picture. It's a little hazy, uh, as you it, may see in that uh, it, photograph. It's so funny you mentioned the publicist jumping up and, and trying to take over. It's always the case. It, even now, you, you're doing this favor for them in a, in a sense. I mean, you're helping a celebrity promote a movie or a book or a film or or music or something, and then they're so concerned about the celebrity being offended and not cared for that they forget where we're part of the scene. You know, we're part of the yeah. show, too. We're, we're helping you guys promote something. I mean, I have a good relationship with my publicist, but at the same time, it's like, chill out. And most celebrities are fine. They don't necessarily have an issue with an extra photograph, but that is the case. Yeah. That's right. Uh, uh, Gerard Depardieu, the famous French actor, uh, I interviewed him at a hotel. He came with uh, wine from his vineyard, and uh, he poured it for me. So I got to <laughs> grab a picture of him giving me his his wine. It's interesting, uh, Bill. the The divas uh, often you think that they're going to be difficult, and they're some of the easiest people. I thought I interviewed Liza Minnelli, and you did too. I found her to be absolutely delightful and charming and and totally humble, at least when she worked with me. And then you have Di- you also did Diana Ross and Cher and some of these others. You know, did you have an impression of them going in based on what we all know in the media about them? And and if so, was that impression uh, changed after you met them? Pardon. I'm just wondering if you had a, an impression of them going in, a, a, an image of what they might be like, and did they fool you and turn out to be uh, sweet like Liza was to me? I think that uh, most of the celebrities uh, were coming in. They knew what uh, they were there for. They were promoting something, obviously. So it was pretty pretty easy, uh, pretty good set, uh, you know, to, to do something like that. Uh, I'm, I was just thinking of uh, some of them are not easy easy at all. Uh, Ed Asner loved being in our newsroom because, of course, <laughs> you know. Lou Grant. <laughs> you know about, Lou yeah, Grant, the right. program, the Mary Tyler Moore show. Uh, and uh, so he was uh, really, he was so excited. He was looking at all of our newsroom uh, wire machines and everything. Uh, I, I, I was so excited and everybody in the newsroom wanted to meet him and shake his hand. Uh, and, uh, Catherine Hepburn, I got to interview her once, uh, in the early days, uh, and some of the, the, the great uh, movie critics, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, uh, uh those, those were some de- delightful interviews. Arnold Schwarzenegger. How about him? How about that? I yeah, you interviewed him early him. on, right? When he was just starting out as an actor, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. He's uh, holding up my arm uh, and his uh, <laughs> best arm and my little skinny arm. <laughs> you actually, uh, you actually, I meant to ask you about this guy um, because I've never even heard him interviewed, at least in the last 20 years, Jack Nicholson. Yeah, I got to interview Jack once, and uh, I, I I recall that uh, he asked me something uh, about my career, and I said I said to him, I said, my career, <laughs> what about yours? Uh, but uh, I asked him about the Academy Awards, and he was kind of dismissive of uh, Academy Awards. He said, uh, well, you know, he said. Uh, it's it's great to have somebody anointing you with a with an award, but uh, in the end, he said they're just a big promotion, uh, and I'm not that impressed with with them. He said I think I could live without them. 
strange to come from him. But so uh, at this uh, point, do you watch Entertainment Tonight? Do you uh, check out the trades? Are you still wondering what it's like there in the red carpet with these other dudes doing it, or or, or have you moved on from that whole thing? I'm I'm sorry, I didn't. My my headphones are not too oh, clear here. I'll ask it again. So at this point, are you? Watching entertainment tonight on a regular basis, uh, are you checking out e-television and all that? Or is that just time to relax? We don't need to worry about who's on the red carpet. Do you still keep in, in touch is what I'm asking? I do miss it a little bit. It, it, was, it was a great highlight of my career, no doubt about it. Uh, I stopped covering uh, Academy Awards in 2007. That sounds like an eternity now, doesn't it? But uh, I still watch some of the entertainment shows, and I, I enjoy watching how they, uh, how they do it. But, you know, uh, back when they were doing Entertainment Tonight on a regular basis, sometimes I would uh, be there watching them shoot their uh, interviews and they would talk to them for like half an hour, and then a 10-second clip from that interview would show up in the evening. You know, that was all that they got. Yeah. Uh, at least I was able to do one better. I will tell you that uh, when I'm watching some of these shows and my wife laughs uh, at me and says, uh, why are you still interested to watch this? I said, I just, I just know how it works and how they do this. And I see that little 10 or 15 second clip from all that that, that they did. So, but it's, uh, it's still exciting. I read the trade papers. I read the trade magazines. Uh, I'm still, I, I love my flea markets, by the way. I, there are several flea markets in New York and I love to go to them and I uh, ferret out uh, some of the old uh, TV radio magazines uh, this is fun for me now. That's what I like to do. <laughs> By the way, it, before we close out, I, it should be noted that ABC Radio News in its heyday when you were there was everywhere. Just about every station, including non-commercial stations, had ABC. We at WBZ, when I worked there, were an ABC affiliate. Even though we were owned by CBS, we still carried ABC. So your stuff was everywhere. I mean, it was overseas as well. Uh, impactful time for Bill Deal and his colleagues, wasn't it? I think we had something like 1,200 uh, or more radio stations that were all over the country. And when I first came to the network, we had four different networks. Uh, the information network was on the hour. Then there was an FM network. Mine was called the Entertainment Network, which is interesting, but it was still a straight newscast. Mm. And then there was the one for the rock and roll stations, the Contemporary Network. But uh, it was it was quite in, incredible. Uh, we had some interesting people who were uh, running the news department and telling us about things we shouldn't say or couldn't say on the air. Uh, we couldn't say uh, a vessel. Uh, it, it's a it's a ship. You can't say vessels. They told me. <laughs> and uh, uh, one of our uh, newscasters uh, at the morning meeting said, "So, uh, what well, what if uh, I, I uh, break a blood vessel? I I break a blood ship." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I worked for some uh, of those was, kind of guys too. Yeah, I know, did. It was it was a, a crazy world. Howard Cosell had the office next to mine, and uh, he was a piece of work, no doubt about it. I, I, Sweet man. I'm so glad you brought that up. I almost forgot. That was a great part of the book uh, we're talking about because I remember speaking of sports, Howard Cosell. Every day he'd do those reports and. Tell the story before we wrap up. Tell the story about how the engineers would roll tape and grab a little extra from Howard uh, ad-libbing and just riffing. What was that all about? You remember? Well, yeah. Uh, you, you're interested in, in the, uh, the, the, the story with the DJs? Yes, please. Howard Cosell was doing his show from his home, and uh, one of the engineers was always rolling a tape and listening to uh, Howard uh, blabbering away before before everything started, 
And then sometimes he would start singing. He would do silly stuff. And uh, Dan Ingram, who was a disc jockey uh, at WABC, would get a hold of that tape and he would play it uh, before Howard did his sportscast. And Howard would be, you know, silly and he would sing and he would, uh, you know, do all kinds of stuff. Sometimes Howard would say, oh, I don't know if I can do another show. This is only radio. <laughs> and, and they would play that on the air. And then one day, Howard's wife found out that they were taping some stuff. And once they had a little argument, I guess they used a piece of the tape. She came over to the network studio and read the riot act of the engineer <laughs> and said, don't you ever do that again or I'll have your head. You're going to be fired. But it was fun hearing those, those clips that they used. Uh, he was so hilarious. I've got some tapes of, of those, which, which are just, yeah. just so, so delightful. And again, another example of a guy whose public persona and image is that of a gruff, uh, impatient, grouse kind of a dude. Was he at all like that just in day-to-day office life, or what was he like to you? Howard was kibitzing all the time. I had the office next to his, and uh, I think he was getting bored. His life was not uh, what it used to be when he was a big, huge television star uh, doing sports. Uh, He would just come in to, you know, sit there and talk to me and chat and have a good time. But uh, those were his sad days, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when he was uh, going downhill. But... uh, I, I loved him when he was when he was on top. There was no one quite like him. Uh, I think in the early days, people used to throw things at the television sets in the bars. Oh yeah, yeah. Here's another name, and I I keep thinking uh, of new names because it's so important to me, and I know to the listeners. Paul Harvey. I, I'm not sure if I recall whether you worked directly with him or not, but he was an ABC champion as well. Paul Harvey did the uh, newscasts uh, in the morning. He did a, an 8.30 newscast. I came on at 6.30 uh, on the network and did mine, and I did a 7.30, and he would come on at uh, 8.30. Uh, he hated New York. Uh, Paul Harvey would come into the city once in a while from Chicago, and uh, I do remember one day he came in to do his newscasts, and he bought breakfast for everybody. He was, he was uh, an unbelievable figure. Uh, and he made an incredible amount of money for the network. I think without Paul Harvey, ABC might have gone out of business. But he was like uh, somebody once said, he, he's like the circus tent that keeps the, the mm. network going. Yeah. Uh, that newscast uh, out of Chicago uh, was listened to. He did two or three of them, and then he did the rest of the story, uh, which was another program uh, that went to stations. Our stations really wanted him. He was so important to the network. Right. We loved him in Boston. He was uh, just beloved everywhere. And uh, I just get a kick out of even the sponsors he had, you know, thermos bottles and gloves and all this kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> but that's but that's the beauty of, of the radio uh, personality that we get to know and trust. And you're one of those guys. You've been around for so many years doing what you're doing so beautifully, and people get to know you and rely on you. And it's an honor, I know, for you. It certainly is for me to do what we do and, and to still have the – the ability to reach people as you're reaching them right now in this podcast. So thank you for that. You know, what's in- interesting, uh, and you talk in your book about how you got your first tape recorder with uh, S&H green stamps. That's right. I didn't have the luxury of green stamps. Uh, I, I did get my uh, first uh, reel-to-reel tape recorder. And uh, some of those clips uh, that uh, I had sent you uh, earlier uh, of my first radio job as a disc jockey, I taped uh, on one an old Webcore tape recorder that we had in our studio at the station in Corning, New York. And uh, I somehow kept that tape all these years. 
and uh, it's been transferred so you, you know you can hear it but uh, i i wasn't uh, uh, you know i wasn't great uh, as a dj i was okay but it was uh, quite something to have uh, everybody in town know who i was well we started out talking about the crystal set and the little wireless microphone and six blocks of air coverage and I swear that's why we do it. We want to impact people in a positive way. At least I do, and I know you do. As I keep saying, it's a great honor to be able to do what we've done and continue to do. So, Bill, thank you. I know the book is rare now and difficult to get, but people can still get it at Amazon.com. And they can always write to you if they want to get in touch and email you yeah. if that's the send, case. Send, send me a note, uh, abcdeal at aol.com. That's my home email. I, I still work part-time at ABC uh, doing, uh, believe it or not, obituaries, advanced obituaries. <laughs> so when some of these big stars pass away, uh, we have already recorded uh, an obituary, which was just ready to air, uh, like when Sean Connery passed away. So uh, that's, that's what I do now. It's still fun to, to do that and, and be in the studio. But uh, if someone... Uh, Here's this interview, and they are just desperate to have a copy of this uh, this book. Uh, I'd be happy, I think, to get it to them. Well, I will highly recommend it. I enjoyed it very, very much. It's called "Stay Tuned: My Life Behind the Mic" by Bill Deal, and Deal is D I E H L D I E H L. What a great deal being with you, my friend. Thank you so much. This was a joy and uh, a real treat for all of us, including me. Thank you. Thank you, and be well. Take care of yourself. Make sure you get that uh, vaccine shot. Oh, I've got two of them. I liked it so much. <laughs> you too, <laughs> my too. Friend. You too, my friend. It is so much fun for me to connect with others in the business, legends in this case, like Bill Deal of ABC Radio and so much more. Bill is a broadcaster's broadcaster, and it's been a joy to get to know him as a friend. Thank you to all of you for subscribing and downloading the podcast, for offering up four and five star ratings. It helps us spread the good word. And everyone on the team here is very, very grateful. You can visit my website, jordanrich.com, for more on this podcast, on all the other projects I have going on. And of course, to find out about my book, which is called On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, All Proceeds Benefiting Boston Children's Hospital. Until next time, be well so you can do good. Take care.